0: These past five weeks, two spiritual giants whose ministry blessed me greatly went home to be with Jesus Pastor Charles Stanley and Pastor Tim Keller. Both were committed to the gospel, both exposited the word faithfully, and both engaged the culture to win people to Christ without ever compromising their biblical convictions. As I read the health updates Tim Keller's son Michael shared about his dad on behalf of the family, I was moved by Keller's deep faith and love for Jesus. Today, he writes, Dad is being discharged from the hospital to receive hospice care at home. Over the past few days, he has asked us to pray with him often. He expressed many times through prayer his desire to go home to be with Jesus. His family is very sad because we all wanted more time, but we know he has very little at this point. In prayer, he said two nights ago, I'm thankful for all the people who prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. And then on the day he died, Michael wrote, Timothy J. Keller, father, husband, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on his forehead, and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. See you soon, Dad. Keller often said in his messages, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. How did these men finish well and are so beloved, unlike other Christian leaders? It's simple. They genuinely lived out the biblical truths they taught. Pastor Charles Stanley would summarize his life's philosophy with these simple but profound words. Obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. The Apostle Paul finished well because he also lived out the biblical truths he taught from the Scriptures. In fact, in his final words with the Ephesian elders, he talked about five things in his own life that he strove for and lived out. Which can serve as a reminder for how we are to live our lives so that our lives can be called approved by god let's see what these five assessments about paul's life are from his own words which hopefully can also be statements about our own lives if you have your bibles please turn with me to acts chapter 20 as we study verses 17 to 38 acts chapter 20 verses 17 to 38 as you're turning to this passage Contextually, we're coming to the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem, where it has been revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would be imprisoned. On his way back, he stopped in the port city of Miletus, which is just 48 kilometers outside of Ephesus. And during his layover in this port city, he called for the Ephesian elders to come visit him because he had intentionally skipped being in Ephesus so as not to be delayed. Paul had a special affinity for this church in Ephesus. He really loved this church and spent a lot of time there. He knew he wasn't coming back to see them ever again, and so he had some words of encouragement as from a spiritual father. I read now verses 17 and 18. For Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. The Bible tells us in his final charge to the Ephesian elders, Paul began by reminding them about the way he lived his life while he was with them. He told them, look at the type of life I lived as an example for you when I was with you all. Then let me stop here and say that one has to be really sure about the way they have lived their life to say something like this. You are inviting others to closely examine your life to see if it is a life not only worthy to be followed, but a life that was genuinely Christ-like as a follower of Jesus. The Apostle Paul was so sure he had personally lived out a Christ-centered and Christ-focused life, although not perfect as none of us are, that he boldly asked the Ephesian leaders to remember the way he lived his life when he was with them. The implication is that Paul did not live a hypocritical life, where he said and taught one thing, but then lived another way. He didn't live a double life, but instead his life was genuine, authentic, and transparent. He professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ and follow Christ he did. He lived a what-you-see-is-what-you-get type of life. I know so many people who are afraid to invite people to closely examine their lives because they know they fooled everyone with their hypocritical living. They profess one thing, such as they are a Christian. They can quote a lot of Bible verses. and even come across as spiritual, meek, and humble. But sadly, they pick and choose which biblical principles to live out. They think they're always right and have spiritual pride in their heart. Like the Pharisees of old, it is a righteousness displayed on the outside for all to see. But get a little closer, and you see that their spiritual life is inconsistent and unbiblical. So you see, my friends, what Paul did in inviting the Ephesian elders to examine his life closely was a very bold and vulnerable thing to do. But when you have nothing to hide, then you can easily invite people to do so. Paul knew he could not fool these people, for he'd lived with them for over two years. So they knew Paul very well. It's like family. You may seem like a saint to others, but your spouse and your children and your pets know the real you. Aren't you glad that dogs, cats, and fish can't talk? Would you be scared if someone asked your spouse and children how you were really like at home? One of my children has a bad habit of occasionally biting their nails. I came across an IG reel of someone biting their supposedly clean nails. But then when they took a closer look at the nail under a microscope, it was filled with microscopic dirt and bacteria. I sent that video to my child and said, see what you're putting in your mouth? Things look a lot different when you take a closer look. My friends, what skeletons in your life are you hiding? What dark places in your heart, in your actions, and in your thought life would make you fearful if they were ever revealed? What hidden things would be utterly embarrassing if they were exposed and came to light? Is there a reason you don't actively encourage people to get close to you and examine your life and actions, to put yourself under accountability? You see, the most natural assumption people will make when someone isn't forthcoming, open, and transparent is what are you hiding? What are you hiding? If you were to suddenly die and leave open your browser history, your social media accounts, your secret chat messages, and all of your files, and your friends and family were to review everything you wrote and watched, would you be ashamed or would you have nothing to hide? That's why personally, My wife has full access to my cell phone. Sometimes when I wake up, I see that my phone is on her side of the bed and she has fallen asleep reading my messages. I wake up and I don't get mad at her, but simply tell her, did you enjoy reading the messages on my phone? You see, I have nothing to hide. And this is the first statement I hope you can say about yourself that will mark a God-approved life. Life statement number one. I live a life that passes close inspection. I live a life that passes close inspection. If this can be said in your life, it will speak of your consistent, authentic, non-hypocritical life as a follower of Jesus. When you invite someone to closely examine your life, to pass the test of consistency, what you do must be what you believe in your heart, and what you believe in your heart must be what is practiced in action in your life. However, our Asian culture is a culture that doesn't lend itself to inviting close inspection. In our shame-based culture that highly values outward perception, as long as we look good on the outside and to the public, then all is well. But that's why we have so many issues bubbling just under the surface, because we have not dealt with the root issues and have not admitted our problems. We don't openly acknowledge and admit that we need help and have to fix certain areas of our lives. We hide behind the facade of simply looking good on the outside as an end goal. But my friends, that is not life's end goal according to the Bible if one is to have a God-approved life. It should be that our life stands up to having it closely scrutinized from the inside out, and it must pass the standards God has set. Can you be like the Apostle Paul and say to others, you are welcome to look at my life and closely examine it to see if I'm truly a Christ follower? Paul had nothing to hide. Do you? I read now verses 19 to 21. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing Paul reminded the leaders of the church in Ephesus was that he faithfully served the Lord with humility in spite of the many trials and challenges brought about by the unbelieving Jews in many of the cities he evangelized. And yet through these difficulties, Paul still faithfully served the Lord by boldly, publicly, and consistently teaching the gospel message, unaltered and uncompromised to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. Evangelism and discipleship were not burdensome chores for Paul. Because it was through these activities that Paul joyfully served the Lord. You see, my friends, there is a difference when we are forced to do something and we want to do something. And there's a difference if we do it for someone else versus doing it for the Lord. For example, if your girlfriend asks you to get her a glass of water while you're on your phone, I'm sure you would jump up and get her one immediately. But what if your mother forced you to go to the kitchen and get a glass of water for your brother while you were on your phone? I'm sure you would say, why can't he get it himself? The motivation affects our willingness. Or another example, what if your boss asked you to get him a glass of water versus one of your subordinates who asked you to get him a glass of water? I'm sure you would tell your boss, sure, happy to do so, happy to get you a glass of water but you may pause and think otherwise to have someone under you ask you to get him a glass of water. You see, the person asking you to do something affects our willingness. Remember what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Therefore, my friends, our perspective should be that everything we do, and even the things we do for others, like serving them, is really something we do for the Lord, as if the Lord is asking us to do it Himself. And our motivation to do what we're called to do is not to receive man's praise but to receive the commendation of the Lord, which comes with a heavenly reward. For the Apostle Paul, he was able to do whatever he was asked to do by God, as hard as the task may be, because his life was dedicated to serving the Lord. And that service to God meant that he would be willing to serve others if called upon, because he saw it as serving God. And so Paul tells the Ephesian elders It was God's call in his life to preach the gospel and encourage people toward a closer walk with God, even if doing so would endanger his safety and bring about many trials and tears, as he so recounts in verse 19. My friends, our vocational calling from God doesn't have to be the same. We are all in full-time Christian ministry, serving the Lord in whatever profession he has called us to be in. So your dedicated service to God may look very different from others. For some, the calling is to work in the church as a pastor or a church worker. For others, it is to be a missionary, a school teacher. And yet still for others, it can be in the medical field or as a lawyer, in construction, selling hardware, fixing cars, in financial services, in academia, human resources, in the government, or in the HRM or service industry. Whatever the profession, we should see it as an opportunity to serve our Lord. And this is the second statement I hope we can say about ourselves that will mark a God-approved life. Number two, I live a life that is dedicated to serving God. I live a life that is dedicated to serving God. My friends, when we dedicate our lives to serving God, then it rids us of our own selfish ambitions and pride because the focus will be on God and others, and not on ourselves. People ask me all the time about how to deal with pride, selfishness, and entitlement. I tell them, serve God by serving others. Naturally, when the focus is on God and others, we don't have much time to think about ourselves. Remember what was recorded in John chapter 13 that Jesus did as He was preparing to go to the cross? The Bible tells us Jesus washed the feet of His disciples. Now, why would the Son of God, God Himself, do such a lowly, menial task, especially when He was about to sacrifice His life for the entire human race? He tells the disciples the reason in verses 14 and 17. If I then, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus was teaching his disciples and each of us through this example, that if the creator of heaven and earth can wash the feet of those he created, then there is nothing we can say we cannot do for the Lord in our service for Him. My friends, is there anything you won't be able to do for the Lord if asked by Him? Would you be willing to give up your career or comfortable life today for Jesus? Would you be willing to forgo the luxuries of life in this present life for Christ? Would you be willing to serve without compensation Would you be willing to do something without fanfare and recognition? Would you be willing to endure trials and hardship for our Lord? Would you be able to say, I live a life that is dedicated to serving God in whatever He asks me to do? Only with this mindset are we able to push back against our own natural inclination towards selfishness, entitlement, comfort, and pride. The problem of today's Christians is not that they don't love Jesus. It is that they're not willing to do everything or give up anything to serve the one who died in our place and gave us salvation and eternal life. How sad. Now look with me at verses 22 to 23. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me." In these verses, Paul told the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit is leading him to return to Jerusalem and that while he doesn't know what will happen to him there, he knows that it won't be an easy road and that things will be difficult and challenging for him. Imagine you're told that life is going to get worse for you, not better as we all like it to be. In the case of Paul, God the Holy Spirit has told him to be prepared because more trials and tribulations are what awaited him. And he would eventually be imprisoned for the gospel's sake. If you were in Paul's shoes and if you knew all of this, what would you do? Would you press on and persevere? Or would you say to the Lord, Lord, I don't think I can carry on if this is my fate. Why don't you go find someone else? I just want to enjoy my life. My friends, it is in times like this when the rubber hits the road that your genuine faith in the Lord is tested. Will you continue in your relationship with the Lord if you don't get your way? If things don't turn out as you desire it? If your prayers are not answered in accordance with your own will? Or if you know that the road ahead is going to be tough, will you persevere in your walk with the Lord? Look how the Apostle Paul faced this difficult reality in verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul confidently declared that knowing the challenges that await him, did not discourage him nor detract him from his life's purpose of preaching the gospel to all, because his desire for his present life was to finish well. Paul knew that life is like a race. Everyone starts the race, but not everyone finishes. Many have disqualified themselves from finishing, and for those who do finish, many do not finish well with joy in their hearts. In life's journey, we see this to be the case So many are dragging their feet through life with no aim, no goal, no purpose, and no joy. They get to the end of life very angry and bitter. That's why we have the term grumpy old men. Getting through the day is a chore for them. There was so much hope and promise for them early on in life, but now they're limping through life just waiting for their time to end on earth. What a sad way to live. Sadly, more and more, I see that so many men and women, even Christian men and women, do not finish well. They get caught up in their own insecurities and personal legacy building. They only listen to one side and speak to people who will only compliment them and so play favorites even with their own family members. They lose focus of how they're supposed to live their lives for the Lord and instead focus on self-pity and their own comforts. All of these inward-focused attention on themselves cause them not to finish well. They may finish the race of life, but they do not finish it well. I have been to enough funerals of wealthy, successful, even spiritual people who don't have many people show up at their wake because of severed relationships, or whose children, grandchildren, in-laws don't bother to show up because of strained relationships through the years. They left a lot of worldly possessions behind, and even a worldly legacy. But that wealth could not restore the most important of relationships, and the legacy left behind didn't honor God. Although successful in the eyes of many, these people did not finish well. There was no joy at the end. You see, the third statement I hope you can say about yourself that will mark a God-approved life is life statement number three. I live a life that is focused on finishing well. I live a life that is focused on finishing well. Is your life's focus on finishing well? Not just starting off well, but ending well. Make sure that at the end, your character, your reputation, your relationships, your legacy are both God-approved and not tainted. In the 2006 World Cup, Italy beat France in a shootout 5-3 in the finals. All over the world, millions of people watched, drawn to the biggest sporting event of the year. It would also be the final match for France's superstar, Zinedine Zidane, the captain and star of the losing team. In the heat of the second overtime, Zidane headbutted Italian defender Marco Materazzi, knocking him to the ground. When the officials saw the replay, they promptly red-carded Zidane, ejecting him from the rest of the match. The millions watching also saw the foul and drew their own conclusions about Zidane. One emotional, senseless, spontaneous act tainted a brilliant career. I never knew anything about Zidane until that moment. I never saw his brilliant career or his superstar efforts. I saw that act, vicious as it was, and thought, What a loser. I look at my own life. I don't want to be known as a loser at the end of my life. I've told my wife and kids this many times. I just want to finish well. Whatever challenges the Lord brings into my life and whenever He calls me home, I just want to serve Him faithfully until the end and have it said of me, Stephen finished well. Because I'm well aware that there will be a time I'm no longer at this church. There will be a time I'm no longer with my family, and when that time comes, my prayer is that my real and spiritual children carry on the spiritual values and biblical principles I preached and have tried to live out in my own life with the help of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone has to agree with everything I say or did, and I don't have to be famous. I just want to finish well in God's eyes with great joy and gladness of heart just like the Apostle Paul. I read now verses 25 to 31. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears." In these verses, we see that the Apostle Paul told them that most likely this would be the last time they would meet, but that he had fulfilled all of his responsibilities in evangelizing, discipling, and mentoring them. He also taught them the whole counsel of God's Word and trained them to handle God's Word properly. He also warned them over the course of three years about false teachers and false teachings and oppositions from both inside and outside the church that would threaten the church they so loved. In anticipation of these challenges when he was gone, the Apostle Paul had fulfilled his responsibility as spiritual father to the church by training the leaders to be prepared for what is to come. And now these Ephesian elders were to take up the mantle to shepherd and take care of the church. It is clear that Paul was saying that I fulfilled all of the responsibilities God has given to me as it relates to you, the Ephesian church. Now you have a responsibility to take up the baton after me and fulfill your responsibilities now to shepherd the church when I am gone. My friends, the fourth statement I hope you can say about yourself that will mark a God-approved life is number four. I live a life that fulfills my responsibilities. I live a life that fulfills my responsibilities. As followers of Jesus Christ, we've all been given the responsibilities of sharing the gospel to everyone we know, to help disciple others in the Christian faith, and to live a life that reflects Christ in our words and actions. This is our responsibility as a Christ follower. Are you and I fulfilling that responsibility? Warren Worsby said, in most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, and build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders if they were enthusiastic or spectators. The converts are won, baptized, and given the right hand of fellowship. Then they join the other spectators watching the pastors at work. My friends, Are you only a spectator watching the pastor and ministry staff work? Or are you yourself fulfilling the responsibilities God has given you as His disciple? If your boss asks you to do something, would you not be embarrassed if when he comes back to check to see if you've done it or not, you tell him, I didn't do it? Of course, we would fulfill our responsibilities if our boss tells us to do it. What more if God tells us to do it, or else we would have to live with the consequences of not obeying God? And yet, why is it when the God of the universe gives us things to do and tasks us with certain responsibilities? We treat it as optional and we don't take it seriously. We're not worried about the ramifications nor the consequences. We take our spiritual responsibilities for granted. As a father Are you fulfilling your spiritual responsibility of being the spiritual head of the household? As a child, are you fulfilling your responsibility of honoring your parents? As parents, are you fulfilling your God-given responsibility to model Christ-likeness to your children? And the list goes on for a Christian. Are you forgiving one another? Are you paying off what you owe others? Are you a good steward of the resources and time God has given you? Andy Stanley, son of Charles Stanley, and a megachurch pastor himself shared this poignant last encounter with his dad. These final few weeks with my dad had been precious beyond words. At the end of every visit, he asked me to pray for him, which of course I did, on my knees beside the big leather chair he was confined to for the past several months. But as I was leaving his house this past Saturday night, he asked if he could pray for me as if he knew. Then, as was his habit, he said, I couldn't be prouder of you, Andy. The source of a word determines its weight. Those were wonderfully weighty words, and his final words to me, I'll miss him every day until I see him again. The father's last words to his son, I'm proud of you. There's nothing more to say. The father has fulfilled his responsibility as a dad, and passed on the baton. At the end of your life, can you tell the Lord, Lord, I fulfilled all the responsibilities you've given me, and he will say, well done. Now here's your reward for doing what was asked of you. My friends, no one said it would be easy to fulfill our responsibilities as a follower of Jesus Christ. But when we fulfill our Christian responsibilities, it speaks volumes about our commitment to the Lord, and it shows the world our trustworthiness and integrity. John Stephen Aquari was never likely to win the men's marathon at the 1968 Olympics held in Mexico City. But his chances were wrecked when perhaps because of the effects of the high altitude, he succumbed to cramps that slowed his progress. If that was painful, then worse was to come. After he was involved in a melee of athletes jockeying for position, Agui fell to the ground, gashing his knee and also causing a dislocation. He also smashed his shoulder against the pavement. Most observers, seeing his injuries, assumed he would pull out and go to the hospital. Instead, he received medical attention and returned to the track to continue his race. His pace, of course, was now much lower but his resolve to complete the event remained intact. Eighteen of the 75 starters had pulled out, but he did not wish to add to that number. And so, more than an hour after the winner, Tanzania's Akwari crossed the line in last place, cheered home by a few thousand spectators who had remained in the stadium after the sun went down. The medals had already been awarded, By the time he reached the stadium, he was limping, and the bandage around his legs were flapping in the breeze. It has been said that Akwari had the greatest last place finish ever, and he was asked, Sir, why didn't you just quit? Why didn't you just drop out? You were injured, you were in pain, and had suffered a dislocation. Why would you continue? And his response has gone down in sporting history, he said. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. What a great attitude to fulfill the responsibility given to Him. My friends, God did not send you here just to start your race. He saved you, redeemed you, that you may fulfill your responsibilities and finish the race. My friends, As long as you fulfill the things God has tasked you with on earth, you will be given a champion's welcome in heaven. It's not about being first in the race. It's about finishing well without being disqualified. Look with me now at verses 32 to 38. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul's closing words to the Ephesian elders were, I commit you into the Lord's hands and to the Scripture which will serve as a guide for you so that your lives will be richly rewarded. Paul could do nothing else. He was leaving. He knew they probably would never meet again, and he wouldn't have any more influence and control over them but he would not worry about this, because at the end of the day, it was God who would watch over them, and it is he who is ultimately in control. So Paul just entrusted these beloved people into God's hands. In many ways, this action showed that Paul understood well God's sovereignty. God was in control, and who else would he entrust the people to except to the one who is sovereignly in control? My friends, whether you like it or not, or whether you admit it or not, you and I are not in control. God is in control. So we have a choice to submit to His will, or we can keep fighting God for control. If we choose to fight God, then we will just be wasting our effort, energy, and time. It would be like pounding sand or fighting waves. We will never win. We will simply get tired and frustrated. And if we choose to fight God for control of our lives, we will simply get angry and bitter. Remember what Job declares in Job chapter 1, verse 21? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Likewise, the psalmist declares in Psalm 113, verses 2 to 4, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. These writers recognize the need to acknowledge that God is in control and is to be praised in whatever situation He allows us to go through. And it was very freeing for them. You see, the fifth statement I hope you can say about yourself that will mark a God-approved life is, number five, I live a life that acknowledges God is in control. I live a life that acknowledges God is in control. My friends, this sort of acknowledgement and acceptance will humble us and help us avoid trusting in ourselves and in our own abilities, wisdom, and strength. The sooner we realize this, the more joyful, easy, settled, and at peace we will be. To know that God is in control, we can just sit back and relax and watch Him at work. Paul loved the Ephesians very much. It was very evident in the tearful goodbye that the Ephesian elders also loved him dearly. The men were weeping as they bid Paul goodbye, genuinely sad that they would not see Paul again in this lifetime. But the best thing Paul could do for the people he so loved was to commit them to God, who is in control, and entrust them into his perfect protection and care. It is the same in our own lives. We can't control our future, so we just have to acknowledge and cede control to God and entrust everything to Him. With our children, we may worry about how they will turn out and what will happen to them in their lives. But as long as we've done our part as responsible parents, all we can do is to simply entrust them to God in daily prayer. We can't control their lives, but we can rest assured that God is in control over their lives. It is the same in our work and business. Because we can't live forever, we have to train others to succeed us, and we simply have to entrust to them those work responsibilities. Even in this church, ultimately, the leadership of this church will be passed to other spiritual leaders. The transition is such that we must entrust this church to the Lord where He is the head. Don't make your children, your family, your ministry, your work, your education, your identity, that which defines your life success. Because we are not in control, doing so will have you thinking you're a failure. Uplift the name of God who is in charge and entrust everything to Him. Remember, my friends, to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, is to truly and genuinely reflect Christ from the inside out consistently When everyone is watching, and when no one is watching, can it be said of us? He or she is a true follower of Jesus Christ. Is our life approved by God? Do we really live out the truths of the Scriptures so that we can finish well? Can these five statements be said of you, as it was said of the Apostle Paul? Number one, I live a life that passes close inspection. Number two, I live a life that is dedicated to service. Number three. I live a life that is focused on finishing well. Number four, I live a life that fulfills my responsibilities. And number five, I live a life that acknowledges God is in control. My friends, may these things be true in your life so that we will all finish well in life, receiving the approval of God for our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. All too often, we live for the approval of the world, and we forget that we need to live for the approval of one, yours. I pray that our lives will be such that we live a Christ-centered, Christ-focused life so that we can invite people to closely examine our life without fear because we're not hiding anything. That through the life of service, we will reflect Jesus. That through the focus of finishing well, we will run the race with perseverance and strength. And that as we fulfill our responsibilities here on earth to our friends and our family, we will live out the principles of Scripture and we will always acknowledge that you are in control of our lives, acknowledging with gratefulness and gratitude all that you bring into our lives because it is for our best. Father, I pray that our lives would be a sweet aroma before the very throne of grace in how we have lived our lives. May our lives be approved by you